0: A long time ago now, a man, an elderly man and woman, got off of a train in Chicago, bewildered, tired, and in the middle of a storm. They intended to get there a lot sooner than what they had arrived, and when they arrived, they were disappointed to find that the first hotel, and their one that they would have wanted to go to, had no vacancies. The young man that was at the desk, his name was George that night, and George George said, hey, uh, we don't have any place for you, but let me make some phone calls and see what we can sort out. And so he phoned various other downtown hotels and finally, disappointedly, he had to tell them, look, it's late. There's four or five big conf conventions going on in town right now. I cannot find a room for you anywhere. But if you guys would want, I'll let you have my room. Down in the basement. It's clean. I'm working all night. I don't need it. It's a place for you guys to at least clean up and get some rest, and we can find you an accommodation tomorrow. And the elderly couple, weary from travel, said, Sure, thank you so much. And they made, the, made use of his room that night. And the next morning, as they were moving up to the other room that had been provided for them, they were so very, very thankful to this young man. And the elderly gentleman stopped by on his way out of, the, out of the, the hotel and he said to this young man, maybe I should build you a hotel that you should manage. If I do, it will be the greatest hotel in the world. And the young man laughed, you know, thinking it was just an old man flattering him. And the young man uh, bid the, the couple farewell. They went about their business. He went about his. And it was not until several years later that he received a telegram with a train ticket And an address in the mail. And in the the telegram, it just made note of the fact, hey, you remember that night when it was cold and my wife and I, we would like to invite you to New York and we would like you to see something. And so he hops on the train, leaves from Chicago, arrives in New York a day or so later, gets off the train, makes his way to the address that was provided on on the paper and finds himself standing in front of a brand new hotel. And as he walks into the lobby, he's met by the same old man that he had met several years ago now, who said, I built your hotel. If you ever go to to New York City, you may have seen or heard about the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. He had no idea that the man that he had entertained that night was a, a super wealthy gentleman um, probably one of the nicest hotels built at that particular time and certainly one of the nicest hotels today. And George, if you go there today and you walk into the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria, you're going to see a large portrait of the first manager, George, who was willing to be used and willing to go the extra mile when somebody needed it. You know, the Bible's full of stories of great people who who made the right choice, and in a moment did the kinds of things that God called them to do. But I, I don't think there's any story that is quite as powerful as the one that we are going to look at this morning. And I have a hunch that the significance of this story, a lot of it is lost to history for us. But I think someday when we get to heaven, we're going to find out that this man, this young man, did more than we ever imagined and changed the course of history in ways that we might not even recognize today, simply because we don't know those stories. But it didn't start off the way it ended. In fact, it started off in a very difficult situation. Jerusalem is under attack. Its sister kingdom, Israel, has been exiled. And Judah now faces the same fate. The year is about 722 B.C. In 605, the third year of King Jehoiakim, the Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar began to besiege Jerusalem. And he started a lot of deportations back to Babylon. And this young man, along with a bunch of other friends, find themselves making a one-way trip to the capital city of this enemy nation. Now, when they arrive there, it's going to be a very difficult season for them. Not only are they young people stripped away from their home, not only do they, are they uncertain as to what will happen to their home, co- home country, but all these young men will become eunuchs in the service of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's in that context that we find this most extraordinary sort of beginning, beginning In Daniel, the first chapter and verse number eight, there's this small little sentence that really sets the tone for everything else that happens in the book of Daniel. And whether you're an older person here today or a younger person here today, this concept applies to all of us. Daniel had been offered, along with the rest of the exiles, a, a great meal. In fact, they were given food from the king's table. I don't know what Nebuchadnezzar liked to eat, but I'm going to guarantee you that it was good stuff. It was well-cooked. And it was probably the best that the world could offer at that time. And you might look at that and think, wow, this is a golden opportunity. But when these young Hebrew kids looked at this meal, they recognized something about this meal. Although it was fantastic, there were things on that meal that were not kosher for them. The heavenly Father, generations before, when Moses was in the and the children of Israel were in the wilderness, God had given them a law. And for reasons of God's own choosing, He said, "I want you to abstain from certain foods, and I want you to I want you to be a set apart people in this area." And God didn't explain that to them. Today, we kind of look back at that and we're like, "I think I get why maybe you wouldn't want to eat certain foods in that time." But as as Daniel and his friends look at this spread laid out before him, it looks amazing. It probably smelled amazing. But they all recognize a problem. But there's only one young man that did something about it. And in verse number eight, it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. The key phrase for this entire story, and maybe... A key phrase for every one of us in this room and the rest of our life is that opening sentence. But Daniel chose or resolved not to defile himself with the royal food. Because Daniel recognized something that maybe we like to avoid, but is really a reality for all of us. And that is that every day, every moment of every day is a choice. God has made certain that that exists for every one of us. And while we don't know how many young men have come from the land of Israel, we can be fairly confident there were more than four of them. There were probably hundreds of them that were brought, hundreds of them that had gone through this training program, hundreds of young men who knew that the food on the table was off their menu, but they weren't willing to do what Daniel did. In fact, I might point out to you this morning that Daniel is the one that resolved or chose or determined and three other friends joined him. If you've never read that story, you should because Really what follows is beginning of one of the most powerful stories in the book of Daniel. Daniel's an interesting book, guys. It's kind of divided into two sections. The first seven chapters of Daniel are all about the life experience of Daniel, the things that set up the story of Daniel. It's great reading. The last seven or so chapters of the book of Daniel deal with prophecy, because God chooses to tell Daniel things that he hasn't told anyone else. And it's fascinating reading, whether you're reading the first half or the second half. But I want us to go to near the end of the first half of this story and spend some time this morning on one of the final stories that we find in the life of Daniel, quite possibly maybe one of the most best known. Because we often think, well, I didn't want this. I didn't choose this. I don't want to be here. And yet we often do choose things. And even in his old age, Daniel will make a choice. And in this choice, there's just a whole lot of lessons for us to gather. We're just going to look at four of them today. Four lessons that really kind of jump out from this text that will change how you live your life if you decide that you're going to employ these into your own life story. And the first one kind of comes... At the beginning of Daniel, the sixth chapter in verse number one, it says it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over his kingdom. Let me give you a fast forward, speed up version of events. Nebuchadnezzar will rule for many, many years. He will go through periods of of highs and periods of lows. Ultimately, I think Nebuchadnezzar probably died as a believer in the one true God upon Nebuchadnezzar's death, his son took over. And next time we jump into the story, we find that the kingdom is now laying in the hands of his grandson, a guy by the name of Belshazzar. Belshazzar was kind of one of those people that lost the farm. Um, he was a partier. He didn't really have a serious mindset. And he wasn't taking the threats to the Babylonian empire seriously. And there was a An interesting situation that had emerged because two groups of people living in Mesopotamia, the Medes and the Persians, had formed a combined army known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And they were setting siege to the city of Babylon. And while the city of Babylon is being besieged, Belshazzar is inside having a party because he thinks that his city is impenetrable. He doesn't know that that the Medo-Persian army decided that they're just going to reroute the river Euphrates and then they march their troops right through the riverbed underneath the walls of the city and into the city and the city falls in one night with almost no bloodshed except for the royal people who were a part of Belshazzar's kingdom. But miraculously, Daniel was preserved. And Daniel becomes a part of of the Medo-Persian empire and now we find that Daniel is serving a Persian king, and that's where this story picks up today. This man by the name of Darius has appointed 120 satraps, which are simply governors, leaders, noblemen, administrators, that they would be in charge of his whole kingdom. And over them, three commissions, one of whom was Daniel, that these satraps might be accountable to him or to them, excuse me, and the king might not suffer loss. And then Daniel began to distinguish himself among all the commissioners and the satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. We talked a little bit about David last week. We noticed that David too possessed an extraordinary spirit. And I'll bet this morning that we could guess whose spirit they possessed. It was the spirit of God living within these people. Because David lived his life for a purpose and so did Daniel. As a young man, completely out of his element, Daniel purposes in his heart that he is not going to go against his God and the Spirit of God has been with him powerfully from that point forward. If you want the Spirit of the Lord to work and to act in your life, the most important thing you can do is be obedient to the Lord. Sometimes, guys, we, we, we want the Spirit to kind of come in and work in our life, but we're not willing to be obedient in the small things, right? We, we want the Spirit to work in the big things, and we want to kind of do our own thing in the small things, but it's in the small things that our character is proven. Daniel's story proves that. He possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And that brings us to the first thing. And that is that Daniel always chose character over comfort. It's easy to be comfortable. And I think we live in a world today where we really desire to be comfortable people. If we're honest, most of us want to be in our comfort zone. We want to not have to be pushed out of that. We don't want to have to deal with things that are uncomfortable. Daniel was willing to be uncomfortable if it meant that his character might remain intact. Reality is, I hate this, but the truth is, guys, that that you can't be both comfortable and a person of character because the world will sometimes put you in a difficult situation. Now, the Bible says as much as is possible, live at peace with all men. We're not out looking and spoiling for a fight, but sometimes that fight will find us. And that's exactly what will happen here in the life of, Of Daniel. Because he has distinguished himself, because he possesses this extraordinary spirit, the king looks at Daniel and he says, There's a guy that is like and better than everyone else that I have ruling my nation, my country for me. I think I'm gonna put him over everything because I number one, I know I can trust him. And I think that Daniel was just the kind of guy that that got along well with those leaders. Nebuchadnezzar has a deep appreciation for Daniel. Even Belshazzar is crazy and as, as, um, as out of control in many ways as he is. He has a respect for Daniel, doesn't he? Darius thinks, here's a guy that I want in my inner circle. When we face challenges, it's not always that the test that's before us that really matters. It's the test that's inside of us that does. This morning, I don't know how to make that personal for you because I don't know what's going on in your life right now. Maybe some of us are here and, and, and there's some situations at work that are that are attempting to compromise our character. People are wanting us to be less than honest about things that are going on in our life or uh, intentions or, or or to deal with things in a way that makes us uncomfortable. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's in the classroom. Maybe right now we know we're not really ready for the finals that we're facing and it would be a lot easier if we could just kind of cheat our way through them. It's better to fail in the outside challenge and not fail in the inside challenge and the other way around. Daniel recognized that to betray, him, to betray God was in fact really to betray himself. There's a story, I love it. I quoted it oftentimes in sermons. But there was a guy by the name of Madison Star, Sart that taught mathematics at Vanderbilt. And he taught trigonometry. I don't know how many of you guys are good at trig. You might stink at trig. Some of you might not even know trig. I can hardly say the word trig. So um, it doesn't matter. But I love the quote that he had about, about, about this in his class. He said, today I'm giving you two examinations. He's handing out the tests. And he would often say this. One in trig and the other in honesty. I hope that you will pass both. But if you must fail one, fail trig There are many good people in the world who cannot pass trig, but there are no good people in the world who cannot pass the examination of honesty. Can I just challenge you today that one of the most important things that you possess is the ability to trust yourself, to know that you are speaking honestly to yourself. If you're here today and you know that you're lying to yourself, If you're here today and you know you're lying to other people, even if your intentions are good, recognize this is a very dangerous place to be. Let's make today the day that that changes. In verse number four, we realize that the rest of the crew isn't so excited about the decision that's being made here. Darius might have liked Daniel, but the rest of the guys aren't so fond of him because as often goes with these kinds of people, they preferred somebody whose moral standard of character wasn't so high. It's easier to kind of run a country and pad your own pockets when you don't have a guy that is perfect in moral character looking over your shoulder. And so these guys realize if they're ever going to get to do the things they want to do in the kingdom. They're going to have to eliminate Daniel. And so in verse number four of chapter six, it says, then the commissioners and the satraps began to find ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to governmental affairs. They're like, okay, we got to get rid of this guy. Obviously, he's made a mistake somewhere. Why did they think that? Because they knew that if you looked in their past, you would find plenty. But as the story continues... It says, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption, insomuch that he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Now, just just for an understanding point here this morning, this is a man who has probably spent forty, fifty, or so years in politics, and yet he is not corrupted. We elect representatives and officials to go to Washington. And we laugh because we say, if they make it four years, if they make it eight, (laughs) we'll be lucky before they get corrupted. Because politics are maybe one of the places where it's easiest to find corruption, where it's most obvious that there's a way to kind of fleece your own pockets or make things nice for yourself. And these guys are certain they're going to find something, but they look at every part of his life and there's nothing there. Because that's who Daniel was. He had purposed in his heart, he had chosen long before that God would be glorified through his life, and God was. And this is what they said in verse number five they said, We'll not find a ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him in regard to the law of his God. And so the satraps and commissioners came to, by agreement to the king and they spoke to him in the following, and I'll condense it for you this morning. They said to the king, hey, king, live forever as if he could. And then they said, hey, here's the deal. We have this great idea. We love you so much that we would love for you to be honored only in the kingdom. And we we have people that are serving all kinds of other gods, but you are the superior God. So why don't we make this proclamation that for a whole period of time, they can only worship the king of the king. Of Persia and of course Darius is a king he's got a bit of an ego he's got a blind spot and so he signs it into law which brings us to the second thing Daniel chose discipline over disorder As you look at the life of Daniel, I don't know what kind of a guy he was, but when you look at every area of Daniel's life, you recognize something about him. He was a man who was self-disciplined. There was no one looking over his shoulder every day to make sure that he was administering the governmental business in the way that it should. There was nobody that was standing by his side through the decades of public service that he had done in the the political world through three separate major kingdoms, the the Babylonian Empire, the Medio-Persian Empire, and now just the Persian Empire. And yet Daniel remains consistent and consistently righteous throughout this whole period of time. He chose to be disciplined rather than just go with what came naturally. When I read this story, I wonder. I wonder how a group of our enemies looking at us might find our life. Would they find no ground for accusation, no evidence of corruption, no negligence in the things that we do? I think there's periods in my life where it wouldn't have taken a very, very, uh, very long look to find all of those things, and yet Daniel's life didn't contain them. That description means a couple things. First of all, it means that Daniel wasn't just doing wrong, or not doing wrong, which is oftentimes kind of what we, uh, we often think, well, he didn't do anything wrong, but he also was doing a lot of things Right. When they looked at him, they they realized he wasn't negligent. He wasn't dropping the ball in any area. He was handling his business. This was a man who was self-determined, self-focused. He was taking care of his own discipline. One of the things that we think of when we think of Daniel is that he faced the simple tasks every day, living as though someone were always watching because he knew there was someone always watching. It could be easy for us to think, well, no one will ever catch this. And you might be right. But God knows. And you know. And Daniel recognized that. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, in verse number nine, he says, Do you not know that that in a race, excuse me, all runners run? Yes, Paul, we know this, right? But only one receives the prize. So run that you might obtain it. Paul's talking about something right here, guys. I think it's really important for us in the modern church to kind of catch on to. He's saying, you know what? Everyone says they're a runner, but only one's going to win. Everyone says it's in a race, says that they're there to win the race, but. Really, there's only a handful of people that are there to win a race. I, I've run a few races. I've done a few duathlons and triathlons over the years. And let me just tell you guys, I am a competitive person, but I have my limits. My limits for that is are fairly, or maybe I'm just reasonable. Um, a few years ago, I went to a duathlon. A friend invited me to. We showed up. Michelle looked at me. I looked at her. And I realized immediately I was out of my element because everyone else around, these are fit people. You guys have heard me tell that story on a number of occasions. I went out that day not to win the race, just to finish the race, right? But Paul says, I think that you should have a different kind of attitude about this. He said, all runners run in a race, but only one receives a prize. So run that you might obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I also should, or myself should be disqualified. This is a passage that I think maybe for a lot of us, we kind of kind of like pass over this, but this is Apostle Paul talking real honestly like here, the Apostle Paul, right? The great apostle to the Gentile world, a guy who wrote two thirds of the New Testament. And he says, in the old King James Version, I buffet my body daily and make it my slaves so that after I have preached to others, I myself might not be disqualified for the prize. Paul recognized what Daniel recognized and that is that, Great people that accomplish great things for the Lord are always people who are self-disciplined. And Paul said, hey, If you can do this for athletics, there's a bunch of you guys in this room today that are athletes, have been athletes. You know what I'm talking about, right? It affects your diet. It affects your sleep patterns. It affects your exercise program. It affects how you use your free time. It affects what you eat and how many snacks you eat. When you are in training for something, you are focused, you are determined, and you will give anything up that has to be given up so that you can accomplish that next goal, if only we had that kind of determination about our faith in the Lord. If only we had that kind of drive and fire in our gut to reach a world full of lost people, the church would be scary to the devil in the world today, guys. Paul's laying out a challenge. Daniel's laying out a challenge to us to quit being couch potatoes, to quit lying to ourselves and other people and say, oh yeah, I'm a runner, I'm a runner, and you look like Jason. You're not a runner if you look like Jason, right? If you're a runner, then live like a runner. If you're a Christian, live like one. Your language should reflect that. Your choices should reflect that. Your self discipline should reflect that because we're called to look like Jesus. The story continues, though, in the book of Daniel. Because Daniel finds out that the document has been signed. Medio-Persian Empire has this strange thing where because they were two different people, they, if something was signed into, into law, it was, couldn't be changed. Daniel knew that there was no getting out of this. There was no sweet-talking the king. Once he said it, it was said. And I want you to notice what Daniel does here. It says, now, Daniel knew that the document was signed. And so he entered his house and he closed the bedroom window He hid under the bed and he prayed to God. No, it's not what he did. (laughs) That's what Jason might do. That's what a lot of us as Americans, Christians might do. Well, if there's a law against this, we're going to figure out how we can kind of get around the law and not get caught. But Daniel understood exactly what this was about. I want you to notice, it says that Daniel knew that the document was signed. He entered his house Now in his roof chamber, he had windows that opened toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. I should point out this morning that prayer was not something that Daniel just was a fan of. Prayer was something Daniel did. He did it regularly, and he continues to do it regularly. It didn't matter to him that there was a law against it. See, Daniel understood that up until the point that the law of the land came in conflict with the law of the heavenly father, he would keep it and he kept it perfectly. He was honorable in every decision that he made. These guys could not find one place where Daniel stretched the law or took advantage of the system until now. Because now the law of the land was an affront to a greater law, the law of the heavenly father. And Daniel was not afraid to be a rebel in this moment. He threw open the window and three times a day he prayed. And of course, the men came by agreement and they found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. And of course, they ran to the king and they're like, oh, king, live forever. We hate to tell you this, but the guy that you think is such a wonderful guy, that we couldn't find anything against even though we looked really really hard he's praying to his god as he's done for the since the beginning of time and then darius knew the lights came on and he recognized that it was all a plot all along to get rid of somebody who was willing to love more than live daniel chose love over life his determination, his love for God was more important than his own life in this point. I I love this, how Daniel just kind of goes. He goes to his rooftop house. He pops the windows open toward Jerusalem, and he prays just like he presumably has prayed toward Jerusalem since he was a young boy. And people wonder, why was Daniel praying toward Jerusalem? Remember that Daniel doesn't live in our world. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit residing inside of him. The last place that Daniel knew that the Spirit of the living God was, was in a little 10 by 10 cubicle in the back of the temple in Jerusalem, and he's praying towards the the, the place in this world where God last was. And nothing is going to stand between him and his relationship with the Father. It's interesting that outlawing prayer in Daniel 6 happens 500 years before Jesus and about 2,500 years before we decided to do that in public institutions in our country. But prayer was not an option for Daniel. It was his connection to God. I love what Jesus said in Matthew 10. I love it and I don't like it because it's kind of challenging sometimes. In verse 32, Jesus said, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. I'm not saying again this morning that we become spoilers for a fight. And I think that if we can, we live at peace with all people. But if you know that upholding some law or some social norm is going to make you deny who you believe that Jesus is before people, that's a problem. Our lives are to be walking billboards of who Christ is and our relationship with Christ. Now, we're not here to pass judgment on everything in the world. Jesus said, I didn't come in the world to judge the world, but to save the world, right? Our, our job is not necessarily to go around and just point out every fault in the world, but our job is to represent Christ and to live ourselves for Christ. And if there comes a place in our future as a country where we cannot do that legally, we, like Daniel, have no choice but to stand on our relationship with our heavenly father and most importantly with Jesus Because there's coming a day where I want desperately for Jesus to acknowledge me. Someday every one of us are going to be standing alone in front of our creator, the Lord of the universe. We're going to be standing there full of the knowledge that we're not perfect people, that we're full of brokenness and we're full of shame. And maybe Satan is going to be there and saying, let me tell you about Jason. And everything he says will be true. You can't lie to God. I'm counting on Jesus stepping out and saying, hey, Jason, welcome home. But if I want to hear the voice of Jesus, I have to be willing to represent Jesus and how I live each and every day, no matter the cost to me. Our enemy wants to keep Christians quiet. Our enemy wants to hide our faith and our devotion from a world who desperately needs to see it But when we pray, it changes things. And that leads us to the last thing that Daniel chose as we close this morning. In verse number 16, Daniel is unfortunately thrown into the lion's den. And the last words that Daniel hears from Darius are these. Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Again, I just got to point out to you guys that, that this guy is a Persian. He's not an Israeli. This guy is not grown up learning about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what he has seen out of the life of Daniel has convinced him that the God that Daniel serves is different than the gods that the Persians serve. And he's so convinced of this that he says to Daniel, you're going in a lion's den, but the God that you consistently or constantly serve will save you. Pretty amazing thing, King goes off to his palace. He spends a night fraught in worry and concern. Early the next morning, it says in verse nineteen at dawn, he went with haste to the lion 's den, and when he came near to the den, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke to Daniel and he said, Daniel, the servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Here's something church that I just really think the world needs to see today. And they're not going to see it as long as we're not living it. They need to see that our God is a living God. We don't just have a form of religion. A lot of the world has a form of religion. They deny its power. The power of God is to change us. The power of God is that we might become people like Daniel that are willing to stand up and say, you know what, I'm not doing that because it defiles my conscience. I'm willing to take the hard road to look and act and behave like Jesus, not take the comfortable road to fit in with this religious group or with that particular sect or with this cultural norm. I'm gonna walk... As Jesus walked, Darius was convinced. And if he wasn't convinced then, he certainly will be in the next sentence because Daniel speaks in verse 21. He said, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me in so much as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king. Daniel realized that as much as it was possible for him, he had lived innocently. He had chosen from a young age to go God's way. I've committed no crime. The king was very pleased, of course, and he gave orders for Daniel to be taken out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury was found upon him because he had trusted in his God. As we wrap up this morning, I want us to notice this final thing and that is that Daniel chose poise over Panic. I don't know how you would feel if you knew that there was a law that was set in place that was aimed at your head. But every part of this story is just complete composure, poise. Right? Daniel, Daniel just kind of walks in to, the, to his house, opens up the windows just like he always did when Darius is losing it and saying, oh, Daniel, I've screwed up. Daniel's like, it's all right. It's okay. My God can save me. And like his three friends says, even if he doesn't, when they were facing the fiery furnace, we're not gonna bow. I'm not gonna quit praying. The ending phrase of Daniel 6, verse 23, makes it clear that the reason behind Daniel's choice wasn't compulsory. It wasn't duty. He wasn't doing it because he was supposed to or he thought he had to. He did what he did because he trusted that God was gonna work everything out. One of the things that bothered me a lot in COVID, and I'll just be honest with you, is that I felt like a lot of us who were Christians lost our composure. We lost our poise. We began to freak out when the world changed. Listen, guys, God has been around from the very beginning. God's watched nation rise and nation fall. God's watched chaos break out in the world and he's brought peace in its aftermath. Do we trust that God is in control and that he is able to, to take care of those things that we have trusted to him. Last week, we looked at Daniel, and Daniel writes this in Psalms 20 and verse seven. He said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses. In a warring sense, those made you, that were technological advancements. That made you able to do things that other people couldn't. But, Daniel, but David says, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Trusting in a God that we can't see is not easy when we're facing pain that we can feel. But Daniel showed us that when we do that, it makes a huge difference, not just in our lives, but in the lives of so many other people as well. While in Babylon, Daniel learned and read scriptures, learned uh, from the book of Jeremiah, and he realized that this exile wasn't going to last forever. In fact, he kind of figured it out. He recognized it was going to last about 70 years. And there's this neat story in that latter part of the book of Daniel where he goes and he begins to pray before the Lord. And he says, God, when are the people going home? And and he, he, he wondered this, guys, because it just looked like there was no way that the people were ever going to go home. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been annihilated. The city had been burned with fire. It was a pile of rubble. And not only that, but but Nebuchadnezzar had done what Nebuchadnezzar did. He took people from one place and he moved other people in. So it wasn't even their land anymore. They didn't even have people there. There wasn't a city there. There wasn't a palace there. There wasn't a temple there. And Daniel is looking at this and he's saying, God, I know that you told Jeremiah that it was going to be 70 years, but I'm not seeing it. God comes and he encourages Daniel. And he also delivers to him a whole lot of information, information incidentally about his son. He said, no one understand this. Gabriel finally makes it through. We don't have time to talk about that. It's a cool story. But from the time that the world goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's a whole bunch of prophecy stuff. If you're interested in that, you come talk to me later. We'll talk about it. It's fascinating. It's really cool, but it's not the part I want to look at this morning, because the prophecy further says that after the Messiah arrives, he will put to death. Uh, he will be put to death, and he will have nothing. The word "after" is the one that's really important. That after the Messiah comes, our salvation comes. Daniel had no way to know that the next king of Persia would look at the situation and say, you know what, Having not everyone messed up and scattered all throughout the world? really isn't working. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send everyone back to their own home country. And I'll just tax them. It'll be a lot simpler. We want have to have near the military. Everyone will be kind of content. They know how to grow crops and, and build an economy in the place that their ancestral and ancestors did so. And that's exactly what he does. And so here goes a group of people by the will of the leader of the world empire, the Persian empire, back to their homeland. It's theirs. Their city to rebuild. Their temple to reconstruct. Because... God had said it would be that way. I know you look around today, I look around today. Sometimes we're exhausted and we see a world that is out of control and we say, God, how can this ever be fixed? How can our country ever be what you want it to be? I can't see it, but I don't have to. I have faith that he can. And what God needs is not power or strength. He can control nations and order things. That's not the problem What God needs is Daniels. God needs young people and older people who are willing to say, I choose to live for you. And maybe for some of us, we've made that decision a long time ago this morning. We were washed in the waters of baptism. We were filled with the spirit of God. But if we're honest, we know that we've just kind of coasted on that decision. Maybe it's time for us to say, you know what? It's time for me to pick up the pace. Maybe there's someone here today that's never made a decision to follow Jesus. If that's you, why don't you come talk with one of us before you leave today. The baptistry's ready. There's nothing standing between you and that decision except your willingness to choose. Let's stand together today and let's sing, church.